It's Cannonballs. We're back. I'm here, as always, with Ben Cosman, and we're talking this week about Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. Hi, Ben. Hi, Gemma. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, you doing anything cool for the holidays? Uh, you know, just going home. Although I did find out that uh, I'm going home to lovely Rochester, New York, and I did find out that there is a uh, a musical production of Little Women uh, playing while I'm going to be home. So I'm going to have to check that out. Little Women, as you know, is the first book we read on this podcast. Yes, it's very exciting, and you absolutely have to see it. We are also joined this week by Hillary Rich, who loves classics but has actually never read Mark Twain before. She does, however, enjoy Tudor history, which means she can tell us why it's so weird that he decided, my friend decided to use real historical characters in this book. Hi, Hillary. Hi. Thanks for having me. We are so happy to have you. Any holiday plans for you? Um, I'm also going to be in Rochester for part of the holidays, but then I'm going to be spending a week in Paris. Um, my first time traveling to Europe, so I'm really excited for that. I'm so jealous. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about the book. Let's talk about The Prince and the Pauper, which I'm sure is a name everyone has heard. It's a catchy title. It's Mark Twain, blah, 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 very classic. Uh, as we always do when we read a new book, we present a scouting report of the book, which basically assesses how we felt about it before beginning the novel. And we do this on a baseball style, 20 to 80 scale, with 20 being the weakest and 80 being the strongest in a few different categories. Our first category is classicness, uh, which I have given for this particular novel a 50 because I feel like it's not really the best known Twain and everyone knows the concept, but I doubt that anyone could tell you any of the other plot details. Um, yeah. So I, that's my question. Basically. Oh, is can you separate the concept from the book? Cause Prince and the Popper is like a very common phrase. I mean, I, I first was introduced to it from, I think it was like a short, uh, animated Disney feature movie thing where Mickey Mouse was basically both the prince and the pauper and got switched for himself. Um, I mean, if if I can, like, the idea of the prince and the pauper, I think, is a 70. But the book, yeah, I probably no one has read the book. I didn't, might not even, if you'd asked me if the prince and the pauper was a book by Mark Twain, I might have said probably not. I don't know. So what are you going to go with? What's your final number? Oh, uh, well, can I, uh, I guess I'll give it a 60, 65. Hillary? Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with the 50. Um, I think beyond the title, I had never really heard of the book. I, I watched the Mickey Mouse movie too. So I, I think 50 seems fair. The The title and the main switch seem to be the only thing that I think most people know about the book. So our next category is accessibility, which is like, how easy is it to read for a modern reader? I give it a 55 because again, I think this book is kind of filled with these obscure quotations and the pacing is kind of weird, so I didn't find it. I, I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know how accessible that is. Oh, I thought it was pretty accessible. I give this a 70 for accessibility. I did not realize it was a young adult book, um, but I guess it makes sense. I guess a lot of Twain skews younger, um, and at least in terms of writing difficulty or reading difficulty. Um, I think it's pretty accessible. I Honestly, I thought it would be harder to read. Yeah, I agree. I think a 70 seems fair to me, just because I had expected Twain uh, to be a little more intimidating than it turned out being. And I think also knowing the main plot going into it made it uh, pretty easy to follow. I mean, I definitely I definitely glossed over some of the uh, long paragraphs where they're just naming people who are standing oh, wow. around. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. 
Uh, so our next category is pop culture influence, which I would put a little bit higher because like you said, there's that Mickey Mouse shirt. I feel like this concept is just borrowed a lot. So I'm going to give it a 65 and it's only lower. Like it's only 65 because I feel like there hasn't really been a contemporary adaptation that anyone has cared about like in the past 15 years or so. Oh yeah. I mean, there's gotta be, I mean, I don't think this, this didn't, uh, invent the body switch or like the mistaken identity switch but did it did it sort of put the the um poor rich class switching spin on it because if so i give it an 80 where because i think that idea is just totally a pop culture touchdown hillary any thoughts about that um if Ben is correct that this was the basis for this like whole um you know switching bodies then sure much higher but by itself I think 65 seems more accurate just because um I, I didn't even realize the Mickey Mouse movie I think is from like the 90s so there really hasn't been something that's pure Prince and the Pauper in that long um so brief spoiler alert if we talk about fanfics later I did find a more contemporary adaptation that's kind of insane that is really like a pop culture <laughs> thing uh, so we can talk about it then if we get there. But the next category is humor, because I thought it's Mark Twain, famous humorist. We should grade it on humor. Um, I'm kind of low on this. I'm giving it a 55, uh, mostly because just uh, going into it before I read it, like the concept of class war didn't seem super funny to me. Oh, I disagree. I mean, I thought the concept was very funny, and I wanted it to be much funnier. I expected it to be much funnier. Uh, but I, I'll go with 55. I'll agree with you because I was disappointed. I, I thought it was going to be, I thought I was going to enjoy the humor a lot more, but I think because it is a more of a young adult book than I thought it wasn't as biting or sarcastic, um, or satirical as I thought it would be. Oh no, I thought it was really funny. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I mean, it wasn't, uh, you you know, a really withering commentary on the classes, but I I thought just the situations were really humorous. Um, Like the example when Tom, you know, has become, you know, the the king or the prince, and he doesn't know if he's even allowed to like scratch his nose at the table or just like the weird situations he gets into about court etiquette, I thought were uh, really amusing. Yeah, I did. I did write down that that line where there's no royal nose scratcher. That was that was probably my, the most humorous line of the book for me. Yes. So I thought humor was maybe like closer to a seventy, but maybe I had like lower expectations going in because I don't know that much about Mark Twain. Yeah, I think mine was a disappointment of expectations because it was you know it was humorous. I just wanted it to be funnier. I think. Maybe it was really funny at the time to people who were like, haha, royals, who knows? Uh, but speaking of the royals, it's time for a quick character wrap up so that as we continue to talk about the book, you know who we are talking about. Um, this little segment is new to this podcast, inspired by uh, the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet, which was on Broadway and it was great, and you can listen to it on Spotify. But the prologue of the show is everyone in the cast singing the names of all the important characters and explaining what they do so you can keep track of them. So I'm going to explain to you who all the characters are and then give you a really quick wrap up at the end. Are you Um, going to sing Gemma? I am not going to sing. (laughs) Nobody nobody wants that at all. Uh, All right, here we go. Um, Edward is the Prince of Wales. Tom Canty has his impoverished doppelganger. John Canty is his criminal abusive father. Miles Hendon is a down-on-his-luck nobleman who saves Edward from many a scrape, and the hermit wants to kill Edward for being the son of Henry VIII. Also, nobody in this book really matters, other than those people. There are a lot of other characters, but no one else really matters. So to sum up, 
Edward is the prince, Thomas is twin, John is Tom's dickish dad, Miles is Edward's savior, and the hermit is a crazy murderer, and no one else really matters. Is there anyone else that you guys want to throw in there? No, that sounds good to me. That yeah, seems exactly. accurate. Uh, ridiculous. Ridiculous cast of characters. I'm going to also give you our minute plot summary. Uh, everybody ready? I'm ready. Yeah. All right, here it goes. <clears throat> Tom reads a lot of books about princes and wants to see one for himself, so he goes to the palace and Edward invites him in. The two switch clothes for a joke, and it turns out they're somehow twins. Edward gets booted into the streets because everyone thinks he's the poor and so Tom has to figure out how to be a royal. Henry VIII dies, and then Tom gets to be king. Meanwhile, Edward gets in with Tom's dad's criminal gang, is saved by Miles, uh, and is almost murdered by a religious hermit. At Tom's coronation, the truth is revealed, the two swap back, and Edward gives everyone who is nice to him money or saves them from being executed because he met a lot of criminals. And that is the story. <laughs> that was good very good i'm impressed mm-hmm. um although i will say i don't so this was a plot point that was confusing to me a little bit when edward first goes out into the streets because he's sort of he like it's his idea first to switch places with tom because uh, he wants you know to have the boyish freedom that every uh you know um sort of cooped up little rich kid wants um but he, he I, I i wrote this down and I, maybe i'm mistaken but he starts like his poverty tourism by running into the streets shouting, make way for the Prince of Wales, which I just think is a colossally bad idea. Well, I don't think that he intended to actually switch lives with Tom. Like what happens is that he notices Tom has a bruise on his hand because the guard was being rude to him and like beat him up a little bit. And so Edward's going to go yell at the guard, but the guard sees this little ragamuffin yelling at him and is like, get out. So he doesn't intentionally leave the palace. He kind of gets kicked out. But then he runs off, but then he runs off to, like, because he ends up at the church where the kids throw him to, like, a dog or a pack of dogs. Um, And, like, it seems like he intentionally goes looking for Tom's house. Is that just because he needs, um, needs to find his way back to the castle? I mean, I think it's because they won't let him back into the castle. So he's like, if I find Tom's parents, they'll be like, oh, this isn't my kid. But that does not happen. Right. John, John Canty, the uh, drug abusive father, just... Thinks it's his kid. I mean, I think it's well. I think it's crazy that this entire plot hinges on the fact that they are identical to each other, like so close to identical. The people whose job it is to put napkins on the Prince of Wales's body when he eats dinner. It's like, yeah, that's the same kid. Like, no one. <laughs> and however, there's no like weird like bastard child subplot here. It's just, well, I guess they're identical. <laughs> Also, weren't they, like, confused as to how the prince got so dirty all of a sudden? Like, I imagine Tom Canty is really dirty when he first switches places with Edward. Well, I think they said he liked to swim in the river and stuff. So he kind of had, like, a princely bearing, and he liked to play in the water, which kept him clean. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, he does. I mean, it's winter, so it doesn't make total sense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some th- things. I had a lot of questions about how this switch could have actually worked because presumably Tom Canty is really skinny from being malnourished. And also, as we know, like even within London, there are a ton of different accents. And we assume that Tom would have an extremely low class accent and Edward would have a very posh accent. Unless Tom's ear is really good, like he might be able to use the same vocab because he reads so much. But could he be so posh about it? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, some uh, some plot holes for Twain. CC Mark Twain. 
<laughs> yeah, let's uh he he'd be really happy about that. He famously published an autobiography that was so full of burns that he made people wait like almost a century to pu- after he died to publish it. <laughs> so let's talk about the class war aspect of his book because there in the time that he was writing there were a lot of other people who were writing about the vast disparity between the rich and poor. And one can assume that that's what Twain meant to call attention to in this particular book. Do you think he succeeded in that? Do you think he did a good job? Did, did it make you think about the differences? Uh, yeah, I, I see. I was really stoked for that. I really wanted it to be, like I said, in the beginning more biting, I think. Um, whereas Edward, I mean, Edward was really kind of evil in the beginning where I think he has this idea um, where he realizes he can't get back in the castle. And then I believe it's after his first night as uh, as Tom. And he sort of, he thinks, he, his mind immediately jumps to, Tom must have planned this. I will have him uh, hanged for it. It's like, bro, it was your idea. Relax. And that, that sort of thing. And then, I mean, he's, Tom, or Edward sort of maintains that, um, you know, snobbishness until... He's put in jail after Hendon Hall, I believe, is when he really comes around and meets all the people who have been, you know, imprisoned. Uh, maybe not wrongfully, but at least excessively. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, do you think that Twain is trying to create sympathy for either half? Hillary, did you identify with the rich or the poor either way? Um, I did feel sympathy sometimes, especially when Ben was saying, you know, he's meeting the the criminals in jail, and I think even with maybe it was a member of the criminal gang that his dad is with that was kind of describing like the the cycle of poverty that he's in where you know his mother is killed and then he's begging and imprisoned for that so his children die and so i did feel like there was this sense of how inescapable it was uh, and i thought that was very very sympathetic um, but overall i was more impressed with how he was highlighting how like unjust the laws themselves were uh, I thought he did a better job doing that um, than than creating necessarily like, just sympathy. Yeah, I I agree. I think the legal the legal stuff was more biting than the class commentary in this, um, particularly because Edwards he goes on like a very basic poverty odyssey where he you know he spends a night with Thomas family and then he ends up with the tramps and then he spends like a morning with peasants and then the hermit who tries to murder him and honestly the hermit probably should have murdered Edward. Um, and, uh, and then in the prison with Hendon Hall and he sort of like hits all the buckets of like, you know, uh, party poor people, uh, nice, you know, loving, kind, poor people, uh, and, you know, maybe sus- suspectly, uh, suspicious criminal people. I don't know. But, um, the, the legal stuff was, yeah, I, I thought it was better where it's like, oh, wow. Particularly when Tom is, um, when Tom is pardoning and is the first act of King, uh, he saves a man's life, and then a couple chapters later, he pardons all these people who were supposed to be executed. And you're just like, wow, that is crazy. You could be executed for a lot back then. Yeah, I think that's the point you wanted to make. I don't know about your additions. I assume that they do, but mine has Twain's own footnotes in it, where he like went through and marked some historical things that he thought were interesting. But there's one section where he notes that um, – at a time in England, there were 223 crimes that were punishable by death. And he obviously finds this very appalling. And uh, that, I think, was sort of the thing he was trying to talk about. Um, I do think he intended the reader to to find your average person much more interesting and sympathetic than a, a royal person, mostly because, like you said, he goes on this odyssey. There are all these different kinds of poor people that 
Edward meets and Tom, like at a certain point, it seems kind of clear to me that Twain lost interest in that. He was like, all right, it's fun to make fun of like how long it takes the King to eat dinner and like how he has to wash his hands and his rose water. But you know, a normal person would just drink water on the table, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's like, obviously having fun getting the digs in and about how the tutors didn't eat vegetables or whatever until really late in the game. Um, but since probably more than half of this book is about what Edward gets up to, it's clear to me that he really wants his reader to think about what it's like to be so destitute. That's what I think about that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, it sort of had reading this halfway through felt more like a really good idea than a full book. I don't know. It definitely felt like Twain was stretching a, uh, an entire novel out of this conceit, I think. So in that case, we should talk about perhaps the most novelistic aspect of the story, which is Miles Hendon, who is this sort of displaced nobleman who helps Edward, who rescues Edward multiple times from all sorts of terrible things. Uh, but he has like the most novelish story, which is that he is the second of three sons. The first son was kind of unhealthy and died. And the third son is le like legitimately just evil. Like he's always just <laughs> connives to steal his inheritance and his girlfriend from him and that's like a whole other thing that's going on that edward eventually helps him with so uh hillary do you have any feelings about why this was included in the book like what did it do for you in terms of the story uh miles story i, I liked him a lot as a character um his backstory to me felt like it was just serving to stretch the book out longer than it needed to be. Like, I kind of agree with what you were both saying earlier. I thought this could have been a really great short story um, and didn't necessarily need to be uh, an entire book the length that it was. Um, I, I was frustrated with his story because I thought that it would be a lot more transformative for Edward than I thought it ended up being. I, I'm not really sure what it added beyond giving Miles a little bit more of a role than just kind of showing up and saving him at opportune moments. Oh, that's interesting. So what do you think was transformative for Edward? Uh, nothing really, except I think the, the prison moment when, you know, he's surrounded by all these criminals and has to really see what they're going through did seem to change him Somewhat, like, you know, it pushed him. I think the point was to be like he became a, a slightly more considerate ruler than he might have been otherwise. But I don't know that he had some big transformation to the extent that I was expecting, at least. Yeah, th there was no epiphany moment, although I think at least I think I don't know if it's it's sort of implied in the in the in the book, but because the hermit is the first person. Edward meets that truly believes he is the king, and he decides. He, and then he, the hermit, wants to murder him because of that, uh, which I thought was really funny. And like the only person to believe him immediately jumps to wanting to kill him, uh, which is a real good uh, impression of uh, how Twain feels about royals. I, yeah, I think it's you know it starts with almost being murdered just because he's royal, and then ends with being imprisoned. Uh, I wanted. Yeah, I don't know. I I also didn't understand what the point of Miles was. I I I yeah, you could have cut him out and it could this could have been a short story. I also didn't understand really why what the point of was of him having or of having him um sort of humor Edward and go along with it. I guess that's why Miles is rewarded in the end, but I don't understand how that fits into the point Twain was trying to make. I mean, I think that maybe we're thinking about this a little bit 
too much like later Twain. Like maybe we want it to be more like Huck Finn and to have all these nuances and second like layers of commentary. But actually, maybe he was just writing a fairy tale because now that I think of it, this is exactly what it reminds me of. Like, oh, the second of three sons and everyone is rewarded. Everyone gets their just desserts, basically. Um, if you do something good, it's, it's like all those stories where you're like, oh, well, the crone was a witch, a beautiful fairy witch in disguise or mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And like the whole time he was the king in disguise and everyone who was kind to him got what they deserved and everyone who was addicted to him got what they deserved and everyone is restored to their proper places at the end i guess to some degree tom's family minus his shitty dad all get a little bit elevated but again it's because they got what they deserve like they don't deserve to live in garbage poverty so they get a pension and like a clean place to live um and that's that's sort of what it is maybe the moral is a lot more simple than we think it should be and the moral is actually just like do what you're supposed to do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, that that's a really good point particularly like you said miles story does feel like an old english folktale where it's very basic and very much you know prodigal son returns has to prove his identity and win you know the bride um yeah, yeah that's interesting I, I guess and then the fact that it is a young adult book is probably uh my expectations were higher than this book necessarily uh, was going to deliver Um, So let's take a quick digression over to the fact that Twain chose to use real historical English royalty for this book. Like Edward is Edward VI, who was the last Tudor king and was the real son of Henry VIII uh, from his marriage with Jane Seymour. Um, Hillary, you really were into Tudor history, I hear, in middle school. So what did that mean to you? Um. I found it actually really frustrating that he had these real characters in the book, um, especially because I don't think he ever tells you how old Edward and Tom are. And so he had just like enough history in there for me to be thinking, okay, you know, if Elizabeth is 14, that means he's around like nine at the time that he gets crowned king. Um, and so I, I guess I found it more distracting than anything else because, uh, uh, it is matching up pretty well with like the timing of everything. I think like Henry VIII does die in the winter and he's uh, Edward is crowned sometime in February. But then like with locations of things happening, things were just like slightly off. Um, and also it was really depressing for me anyway, knowing that Edward dies so young as a king. So <laughs> any, you know, any real like transformation that he has, you just kind of know going in is going to be very short lived because uh, his days are pretty numbered as a ruler. Um, So that was kind of always in the back of my mind that, you know, he's really not going to be able to really radically transform English law just because his reign was so short. I do. Crazy. The fact that one, okay, they drink a lot. Like both of the kids are like drinking a lot of alcohol in this book. And (laughs) they're around nine or 10 at the beginning. Um, But at the end, it, it does make it seem like Edward's reign was much, much longer than it was, which was about six years long. And he died when he was like a teenager. Um, so I, I also was like, what is this is in essence like history fanfic. It was kind of strange. Yeah, I, I thought when I was reading the ending, I think there's a very short, quick reference to the fact that, you know, Miles and Tom lived these long lives. And, you know, unfortunately, Edward, you know, sort of bit the bullet a little early. And I was like, oh, wow, OK. Um, I was trying to figure out when I, when I, cause when I first started reading, I didn't realize it was based on real uh, historical figures. And then all of a sudden they started talking about Elizabeth. It's like, Oh, maybe that's queen Elizabeth. And Hey, it was, um, 
I do want to, so then I started reading the Wikipedia page for Edward VI, and I do want to include my favorite historical fact that I have read on any Wikipedia page ever, which is that it is cited that Edward was a healthy baby who suckled strongly from the outset. Uh, So that is some historical color for the book uh, for anyone who wants to read The Prince and the Pauper. I hate that fact. (laughs) But also, I want to know, like, who... How did somebody know that? Um, I guess Twain might know because he spends a ton of this book using quotes from other sources about right, the, I, like descriptions of stuff that was going on. Um, what did those moments do for you when he was just literally quoting another writer for like sometimes a page or more about a description of some kind of fancy rich person thing? My book doesn't have footnotes. It has those quotes. But honestly, when I was reading it, I thought it was just a, uh, a device that Twain was using, like, don't take my word for it, take this guy. But then he was just writing it himself. Because uh, I don't have footnotes in my, my copy. Yeah, me too. I thought he was just making something up the whole time and just creating these historical sources, um, you know, for some color. I didn't realize they were accurate. That is so interesting. My copy has, like, Twain's footnotes to his drafts. And um, it's the Signet copy, in case anybody cares, Signet Classics copy. Um, but it's just, he's like, I, I also thought it was some kind of like Lincoln and the Bardo style thing when it's like quoting all these fake historical yeah. writing. <laughs> um, but in fact, it, it was, it was real. And I think that now, like the more I think about it, the more I consider this to basically be Mark Twain's Tudor fanfic, because it seems like he was just reading a lot of English history and was like, wouldn't it be fun if I just wrote about this? And maybe he didn't have the social agenda that we really attribute to this. Maybe he just, and it seems like he really likes Edward VI, that he really thought of him as like this merciful, interesting, kind ruler, again, who was a child at the time. Um, so that's its own thing. Uh, but th- that's how I started to think about it. Um, d- Hillary, are there any interesting Tudor facts we should know that would add color to this? Um, well, so he did take, Twain did take some liberties with like the characters' relationships that I thought were kind of interesting. So throughout the book, um, Mary Tudor is kind of sprinkled in there as this, you know, like unpleasant, like kind of dour sister that he has. And I think she kind of has that reputation in history, but I've read some sources that say she and Edward are actually really close um, and got along really well because throughout um, Henry VIII's life, he inherited and disinherited his children sort of at random, um, depending on who was in favor at the time. But I think Mary Tudor and Edward were actually pretty good friends and at least corresponded with some frequency. So I was sort of surprised that he used her as being this kind of like understated villain in the story um, when that doesn't seem to be the real tenor of their relationship. And Elizabeth was always the one who was like, oh, so friendly and making sure that he never felt Tom when she thought that Tom was Edward was never uncomfortable because he was mad and had forgotten all the rules of royal etiquette. Um, Does that jive with your characterization of Elizabeth? Oh, yeah. Um, A lot of stuff I had read about Elizabeth coming from middle school. So I don't, you know, I'm not sure how accurate this was, but... uh... A lot of the things I remember about her was that she was very intelligent and very gregarious and uh, very adept at like putting people at their ease. Um, And sort of she had to be, you know, because she never really knew when she was going to be in her father's favor at the time. Um, So she was always sort of uh, making sure she was in everyone's good graces. 
there is a lot of interesting royal intrigue that's sort of hinted at here that I, I would have been interested in seeing kind of more of in the plot. Like there's this one moment when two of the courtiers are talking about, well, maybe it's not Edward. Maybe this is a different person. But then they think, oh, we can't even talk about this because we could all just be instantly beheaded if anybody finds out. Um, I wonder, I wonder, like, if you had to try to map that to something that Twain was trying to explain, do you think he was trying to do anything with that? Or do you think he was just adding color to the story? I thought it was kind of bizarre that in the sentences before that, they were perfectly comfortable discussing that the king was potentially crazy, but they weren't allowed to suggest that it was a different person. Um, so I'm not sure if he was getting at sort of the irony that, you know, with this class system, you're allowed to be crazy and still in charge, but you can't actually question their authority. That's very smart and interesting because he does say like, oh, my son might be mad, but I guess madness will just rule because what? Like, he's not going to be king? <laughs> uh, okay, so before we move on to our fun games that we always play at the end of the podcast, uh, what was everyone's, what did everyone think was the funniest moment of this book? Because it is funny. Like, there are there are a lot of jokes. Uh, for me, it's the hermit being the first person to believe Edward is king and then instantly deciding that, well, now I have to murder him because he's the king. I, I thought that was really funny. I don't know if it was intentionally funny. Like, I think it was supposed to be more, maybe more of a tense moment, but that was the funniest moment to me. Uh, I really loved the scene where, um, like, there was that prisoner procession outside of the of the palace and Tom calls them all in. And I really loved his, like, child reasoning of who's guilty and why. Uh, and the way that he works through it, especially the stuff that had to do with witchcraft. I thought it was sort of hilarious how he was like trying to reason through what would make a witch and what would make them guilty, especially when he's talking about how it's unfair that a child can sell their soul to the devil, but they can't sell themselves into slavery to an Englishman. And that's really unfair to the English. Um, so I just liked his child logic throughout the book. <laughs> that was such a good scene. I, I agree with you a lot. I liked it. And I really liked how he he really thought that this old woman would make him a storm. Mm. And he's so stressed out. She's like, oh, I, I'm not going to do it because then I'll I'll be killed. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's That's not a thing. I'm going to just, I wave it to pardon. But now can you make a storm? And she can't do it because obviously it's not real. And he's like, oh, it's because you're scared. I understand. But you know what? If you ever feel the power coming back, just come back to the palace and make me a storm. <laughs> It's so cute. He just is like a little boy and he wants to see something cool. Also, as as, as reference to your earlier thing, like sort of the absurdity of court life is when he's making these judgments. Um, everyone praises him as being such an original thinker. And it's like, yeah, he's nine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so ridiculous. Um, the part that I laughed the most uh, at, even though it was not actually funny, was when Edward is taken in by the farm family for like half a day and the little girls are like, yep, that's the king. And his, the mom is like, whatever. I mean, he's a polite vagrant, so I'll give him some jobs. And he wants to peace out because he's like, I don't need to do jobs. I'm the king. Um, and uh, the reason he finally decides, so it's like very casual how this is dropped in. So this is the part I'm going to read. Afterwards, he kept him carding wool until he began to think he had laid the good King Alfred about as far in the shade for the present in the matter of showy menial heroisms that would re read picturesquely in storybooks and histories, and so he was half-minded to resign. And when, just after noonday dinner, the good wife gave him a basket of kittens to drown, he did resign. Like, what? <laughs> what a task in your life when you just need to drown kittens? Like, yeah, I would dip too. I'm not drowning these kittens for you, old lady. What is this? 
Yeah, yeah, I thought that was funny too. It was very casual. Like, well, that's that's too far for him. Yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> Why are you trying to drown kittens? Like, what? Just let them go into the woods. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess this is a thing. Like, I read a lot of various like short stories that always hinge on some farm family having to drown kittens, and it's awful every time. Uh, but you know, um, interesting. Uh, so th- those were the funny moments for all of us. Now it is time for us to play our favorite game, the die of death, which we will roll a die. And depending on what we get, numbers one through six, we will play one of six games. Wow, that got racist or sexist. Who goes Nazi? Would you rather pitch the bad gritty reboot? Share a little of your favorite fanfic, which is a new game we invented last time. We look for fanfics about the thing that we read um, on the big wide internet, which is dark and full of terrors. Uh, and six, describe the book in three words. Uh, who would like to go first? Uh, why don't you go first, Gemma? Oh, wow. Okay, I never go first. All right, I am going to roll the die. And I got two. Who goes not? <laughs> um, I think that, I, I, I mean, probably everyone. Uh, <laughs> keeping with my theory that this is actually a morality tale about how if you stick to what you're supposed to do, then you will get your just desserts. Um, like, Tom was doing okay at being king, right? And Edward started this book out as a little dipshit. Uh, so, I, I mean, <laughs> why doesn't Tom get to be king? There's, like, no reason that Tom can't just keep doing a good job at the job he's doing except for blood, right? Um, right. And blood purity, yeah. that's a very Nazi thing. Uh, and, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the entire Ruffler thief gang would become Nazis because they would use it as an excuse to just do a bunch of terrible things under the cover of the law. Um, the Mad Hermit not would not become a Nazi because he was too crazy and they were not fans of that, uh, generally speaking. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe Miles would not become a Nazi uh because he knows to question things but uh, that's borderline for me that's how i feel about that yeah no one uh no one seems uh strong-willed enough to not become a nazi in this book (laughs) and they all seem to go along with whatever sort of happens to them we're like oh the king's crazy well he's king so we have to follow him like Oh yeah, everyone's, Every everyone's just order. following orders. Yeah, they're all Nazis. Every single one of them. Every single one of them who's like, I guess that we're just going to listen to the orders of this child because that's the way things have been done. Like, no, all every single one. Of them, they're all Nazis. Yes. Yeah, the Kermit. You're right. The Hermit is the only one who really has like the courage of his convictions. So <laughs> he's the true hero of the story. <laughs> Um, if we still did pitch your own fanfic, obviously you got to write it from the point of view of the hermit, who also wants to kill Edward because Henry VIII did break with Catholicism and the hermit loves Catholicism, as we learned. Um, Hillary, you want to go next? Yes, please. All right, I'm going to roll for you. Here we go. And that is number four. Four, pitch the bad, gritty reboot. Ooh. So how would you reboot? Ah, that's tricky. So I feel like you could really take this story and put it in any place in time and have it, you know, be interesting. Like you can take any position of power and someone who's poor since the class system kind of always exists. Like you could do it with the president now. Um, but there's so many plot holes, like we were talking about earlier, that I feel like it'd be really difficult to do well. 
So I'd, I'd kind of like to see a version, and maybe this is veering more into fan fiction than just a reboot, where the hermit does actually kill off Edward. And I would sort of like to see the contrast of like him getting tried as a murderer for killing just a commoner versus the punishment for a king to sort of drive like the class distinctions home. Since ah. In both cases, it's just like a little boy, but since one is so much more important than the others, the punishment would be exponentially worse. Um, and so I think that the point that Twain is making could be more clearly made if the Hermit just does kill off Edward. <laughs> and like, would anyone have found out? Like, would people believe him? Where if he goes to town and says, "Look, I killed your king," people are like, "You just killed a random kid. The king's in the castle." Yeah, exactly. I love that a lot because then I feel like it could become like a whole scandalish cover up. Like, because there's a moment in the book when they're all helping him get dressed and they all point something on his leg, and it's literally never mentioned again. But I vaguely remember in the movie that they determine who's the real king because of a birthmark, um, and. So, like, maybe a couple of courtiers know about it, and they know that the crazy hermit killed Edward, but they want to preserve the monarchy. So they're like, whatever, we have an Edward. Who cares? Ooh. And then they have to, like, cover it up to make the monarchy survive. Yes. Man- Manchurian monarch. <laughs> I'm so into this. I'm so, so in. Uh, all right, Ben, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I really wanted to get this one. Got number five. Share a little of your <laughs> uh, So I was surprised at uh, the fanfic that I did find for uh, for this one. But I'm going to do, I'm going to, so it was like one of the first results I found and was a Harry Potter themed a fanfic of Prince of the Pauper. Uh, but as I was reading it, I think it just sort of uses the title and the conceit rather than a spinoff of Mark Twain's book, um, but it, it, it positions Draco as a rich, uh, sort of like rich uh, aristocrat, and then Harry he has to Harry is broke and like begging, and he and Draco hires Harry to be his manservant, which I thought was an interesting. I don't know if you know there's another chapter of this fanfic where they switch places, and then Harry becomes a rich person. I don't I really understand how this works, but I was just stoked to see. I mean, of course, I think there is Harry Potter fanfic that intersects with any book ever like i'm pretty sure we could have found bleak house and uh harry potter fanfic if we really wanted to try wait so are they adults or children Uh, they are adults in this i believe and uh and it uses you know there's a yeah i believe they are adults Mm, okay interesting um just because we all looked into this a little bit and i'm amused it's the first time we've ever played this game hillary did you find any cool Prince and the Popper fanfic? I sure did. Um, I am about, I'm into chapter eight of one that is called The Princess and the Popper, a Harry Styles fanfic. And <laughs> I am loving this. So the idea is it's two half sisters, and apparently one is the princess and one is the popper. I am not sure who is supposed to be who, but I think it's supposed to be clear at this point in the story. Um, but they are teenagers, I think somewhere outside of London. And There's really no connection to the Mark Twain story at all, but Harry Styles is working at a bakery and is really good at making cupcakes. Um, And he's like fallen in love with one of the sisters who now suddenly has a modeling career that she's pursuing, but he's going to go on the X factor. So it's, I'm not sure if the relationship can take it um, this long distance thing, but I'm excited to find out. Wow. This sounds thrilling. I mean, I guess (laughs) the half sister is going to switch places with her. 
May, maybe, but Harry has been very supportive of her pursuing her career, so I'm not sure how it's going to play out yet. Interesting. Uh, well, you'll have to let us know how this ends. Um, I'm not going to go too deeply into the one I found, but I do want to say that it led me to a 2004 adaptation of The Prince and the Pauper called Barbie as the Princess and the Pauper, and it is a computer-animated direct-to-DVD film that is about two different Barbies. Um, one is a blonde and one is a brunette, and they are coincidentally born at the exact same time in, like, a magic kingdom, and they are otherwise, other than one is a blonde and one is a brunette, and they're both white, they look exactly the same. Uh, so they end up having to do this identity, they do an identity swap to, like, foil this evil plan, very plot-heavy, more so than the actual Prince and the Pauper. Um, but this movie exists, and people write fanfic about it. So I found a fanfic of this that I think is kind of a badass reboot, which is, what if they were all pirates also? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is a great conceit, just of taking, like, any work of art and being like, but what if they were pirates? (laughs) I'm into it. It's like, so it's 26,000 words. I did not read all of it. Wow. It it is called The Siren and the Rose. And uh, there's uh, presumably a lot of identity swapping and piracy. So that sounds dope. That does. I'm I'm into it. I'm into all this fanfic. More power to everyone writing fanfic, including Mark Twain, who himself just wrote Tudor fanfic, (laughs) as we discussed. Uh, so that was the Prince and the Pauper. Um, who would you recommend it to anyone for any reason? Like, if you would, who would it be? Um, I would re- maybe recommend it to like a young child. Yeah, I would recommend it to kids in like Eaton or something. Maybe some you know prep school, private prep school. Read this, yeah, you dorks. <laughs> so only little rich kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, yeah. Uh, for everyone else, you know the conceit. You're probably good. Yeah, I think for most people, you could probably just read the Wikipedia page and be done with it. I haven't read other Mark Twain. I'd like to now, but I, I imagine there's there's better examples of his work out there than this. Puddinhead Wilson is essentially the same thing, but in America and with uh, race, where um, one character has like one eighth um, uh, African American blood in him, and but so he's treated as a slave, and then the other uh, the master's uh, son is white, but then they get switched, and like. You, there's no difference between the two because it, uh, it. I mean, it's essentially the same plot. Uh, I, I read Put It Down Muslim College. I thought it was it was funny. It was funnier than this, I think. All right. So uh, our takeaway is mostly like just read Put It Head Wilson. Um, maybe we'll pick up in <laughs> a little bit later. Uh, but that was that was the Prince and the Pauper. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us. Please come back for another book. Oh, thank you. I'd like to. Ben. Uh, a pleasure, a pleasure as always, Gemma. I will see you next time when we will be reading Lolita, which is going to be a trip uh, by Vladimir Nabokov. If you want to talk to us about this book on the internet, you can find us at Cannonballs Pod on Twitter or on Instagram. We would love to chat with you. It's uh, only two N's in Canon C A N O N Balls with a Z. Uh, look us up. We want to chat. Thank you so much for listening. Good reading, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>